Uh, I was in my early 20s when I got called to the big leagues. And by that, I mean the big weekend service to preach at the big church. Um, I'd done some preaching in other spaces, uh, but then I had this chance to show up on the weekend service stage. And at that point, we did seven services a weekend at that church, three on Saturday, four on Sunday, and you preached all of them. And so, you know, it's, it's like a big, uh, somewhat stressful but exciting opportunity for a young guy who wants to preach. And so, I, like, I ran after it with all the zeal that I had, right? Well, you, the weekend, like, I mean, it's a lot of mental effort, right? And it's a lot of uh, physical energy, right? And on top of that, there's um, people who want to talk to you after the service because they, they want to share what's going on in their life or whatever. And the most obvious person to talk to is the guy who was on the stage. And so there's all that going on through the whole weekend. And man, like, I knew, like, in some sense that I was tired at the end of it. But Monday morning, uh, I was sleeping in to recover from what you call the ministry hangover, which is a very real thing, no substances required. Um, but my phone rings, my cell phone is next to my bed, and my phone rings at 7 a.m., which is frustratingly early for me any day, uh, but especially like the day after such a massive effort. So I look at the phone, and uh, the caller ID tells me that it's a teammate of mine from the church. Uh, he's a few years older than me. He's like a big brother of mine, somebody I love and respect and trust very much. And he's calling my phone at 7 a.m. on a Monday, and I'm thinking, great, is, like, is he calling to tell me that like, the church, like, did I blow up the church? You know, like, did, like, did, did I like, lose all of our donors or do something wrong up there? And so I figure I should check on what's going on. So I, I answer the phone, and I'm like, ah, hey, Rob, um, what's up? He says, hey, man, you just did a great job this weekend. I'm really proud of you. And I'm thinking, that's really nice, but couldn't this wait, right? Like, <laughs> like I'll see you in the office later today, you know? Well, he says nice things for uh, a second or two, and then he says, the reason I'm calling is I want to tell you that you're about to have the hardest day of your life. I said, excuse me? Like, what do you know that I don't know, right? And he said, I'll tell you what I know that you don't know. I know that you don't know how much you just gave. And you're about to find out the hard way over the next 12 to 24 hours. Uh, you're going to feel a lot of things with an intensity that's going to catch you off guard. You're going to feel dark and depressed. You're going to feel sad and alone. You're going to feel empty. You're going to feel like the work doesn't matter. You're going to be susceptible to temptation in ways that you have not been in your memory. And I just want you to be ready for it. I want you to pray through it. And I want you to know it's normal. It's okay. Because like for the last two days, like mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all, all these things that you poured out, you just, you have no idea how much you gave and you're about to find out by how empty you're going to feel. I thought that's a strange phone call for seven on a Monday. If it had been virtually anybody else, I would have thought they were crazy. But again, I really trust and respect this person. So I hung up the phone, went back to sleep. A few hours later, woke up to experience the hardest day I had had in my memory. <laughs> Now, the thing about that phone call is it didn't prevent me from going through it, right? But man, did it make a difference. Because if somebody can tell you, I've been where you're going, here's what it's like, here's what you can expect, it can be so powerful, right? Because the last thing that you need when you're going through something is on top of it to think you're the only one or to think there's something wrong with you and that's why you're going through it or to think that you're crazy or that this is a warning sign of some deeper thing. And when somebody just says, oh yeah, I've been there, totally the way it goes, right? It can be so powerful. 
I know this is the experience uh, for people in our church. Maybe you've um, gone through a divorce and found a support group of other people who've been through divorce. Or maybe you've gotten a medical diagnosis and you found a support group of people who are going through the same medical trial. And to sit in a room with other people who look you in the eye and be like, oh yeah, that thing you're talking about? Totally normal. <laughs> Here's how we dealt with that, right? I know friends of mine, uh, women who've been pregnant, who have found great help from that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Because when you conceive, you're about to go on a journey that I hear is uh, <laughs> complex and surprising physiologically and emotionally in all these ways. And for somebody to just say, oh yeah, here's some snapshots of what that typically looks like can be really powerful solidarity. We all need that. And I would argue it can be especially helpful when we're on a journey in, in faith or, or spirituality. And when we, we bump into seasons or stages that we didn't expect, it can just be so helpful for somebody to say, yeah, that's, that's actually how that usually goes. This is why uh, this month we've opened up a conversation that we are calling the anatomy of spiritual evolution or revolution. Evolution because sometimes it's sort of incremental and revolution because sometimes it's disruptive and abrupt. Last week we talked about like new year, we want to grow, we want to keep going forward in life. And sometimes growing means more of the same more of the same things that got you this far, but sometimes growing means it's time for something different. It might even mean that it's time for something radically different. If you were here, you know we grabbed that, that moment in the story of Mary and the resurrected Jesus. Mary had been with Jesus. She, she had known him as friend and teacher and Lord for those three years, and then she watched her friend murdered, crucified, and then she went to the tomb to tend to his dead body only to find out that the tomb was empty. And this, of course, creates its own sort of disruption uh, on the back end of seeing him murdered. And then she sees the resurrected Christ, recognizes the resurrected Christ, and embraces the resurrected Christ. And Jesus says that strange thing to her. He says, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me, which can feel cold or unexpected. But maybe Jesus knows that Mary's temptation in this moment is, please, God, can we just go back to the way things were? Like, because for three years, it was through this person and through his life and through his friendship, through his teaching, through his healings. It was through this modality, this package, this experience that I knew the life of God in my life. And then they killed him and I want it back. And he says, don't cling to me because the future is going to be different than the past. This isn't going to be more of the same. In fact, he seems to know that what's coming is better because he's about to breathe the spirit on his friends. And they're going to experience the life of God in their midst differently than they did when Jesus was walking around with them in flesh and blood. So he says, don't cling to me. And we are here to talk about growing and changing and the promise that the journey we're on is actually uh, something that we can map, that there are some predictable movements in the journey of growth. And as I've been trying to understand this in my own life and for our church and doing some study, I've actually been really frustrated because I've been discovering that a number of really thoughtful people over the years have studied the, the way that human beings grow in spirituality or faith, and they have discovered there are some predictable movements. And I'm reading this stuff thinking, why didn't anybody tell me? That would have been really nice, right? So I, I would like to tell you uh, a little bit of what this research looks like as we talk about growing in faith. Now, um, uh, today I'm going to 
borrow extensively. I say borrow as if I'm not stealing. I'm stealing extensively from the work of one particular book, and I just want to give credit where credit is due and uh, recommend it if you want to go further into this. The book is called The Critical Journey, Stages in the Life of Faith. It came out in the early 90s. And uh, really, like every sermon, you know, borrows from many places. This sermon just particularly takes their work and tries to appropriate it for our community. So I want to give them credit for that, okay? Uh, highly recommend that you check it out. And today, we're, I'm just going to share with you some of the movements that they have described as being quite common in the life of faith. Um, a note about that, though, when I talk about faith, I don't just mean the stuff that happens when you come to church on Sunday, right? When we talk about spirituality, I don't just mean the, the moments in your day when you're consciously thinking about God or belief or faith or prayer. We're talking about the whole person and the whole life. We're talking about your work and your family and your love life and your time in the classroom, all of that, the way that it's all sort of gathered up in how we are growing and who we are becoming. Uh, but some of this will explicitly name the kind of things you might have experienced in church. So uh, that being said, uh, a couple of disclaimers before I jump into these pictures or stages or phases in the life of faith. Uh, first of all, uh, when preachers stand on stages and talk about this kind of thing, it can sound as if we're describing a journey that looks like this, right? Just like, like methodical and direct and up and to the right, but we all know that it looks more like this, right? Okay. <laughs> couple other disclaimers. Uh, I'm borrowing from the map the way that the critical journey describes it, but this is not a perfect map. It's a sketch at best. So like, let's hold these categories loosely, and to whatever extent they help or name something true for you, great. And to whatever extent you don't relate, that's okay too. That's one disclaimer. Another disclaimer is this is not a hierarchy. This is really important. There's no such thing as a better place to be on this journey or a worse place to be on this journey. And I really mean that. Fact is, there are holy and healthy ways of inhabiting any point in this, in this journey or on this map. And then there are unhealthy, unholy, stupid, frustrating, arrogant, broken ways of inhabiting different parts of this journey, right? And I would say the one, the one real problem would be to look down on people who are in places different than the place that you are in, or to look down on yourself because of where you are at. That doesn't do any of us any good. This is not a hierarchy, right? And then one more, this is not a factory. If you've been here for a bit, you know that one of our mantras is fields, not factories, because the spiritual life doesn't work the way a factory works. It works a little more like life in the field. We can't imagine the spiritual life with, with an industrial imagination, even though it's tempting to. Because in the modern era, we've been tempted to think of everything with an industrial imagination. But we need to recapture an ecological imagination for how we think about growing, which means it's not on your timeline. It's not on my timeline, which means um, there will be seasons that last longer than we want them to, even if we're doing everything right. It also means uh, that your journey will be unique to you, and mine will be unique to me. And while there might be common ground as we move through it, you're, like you are who you are. And you are a unique species in the history of the world. And the species name is you. And so we want to honor that, even as we try to paint some broad trends uh, that a lot of us will find familiar. Those are my disclaimers. Uh, the way that I want to move through this is to start with some moments in the scriptures that seem to reflect some of these stages. And one of the ways I want to argue today is that the Bible is a really good book 
for people who are moving through different phases of faith or belief, deconstructing and, and reconstructing. And this might be surprising because for many, it feels like the Bible was part of like a certain phase and maybe you've deconstructed that and now you're not sure where it fits. Well, if the Bible is like a constitution, like just a set of rules and nothing more, then it probably only works well in certain stages of development, right? If the Bible is just a download of information about right belief, well, then it probably only works in certain ways. But I'm arguing the Bible's a fantastic companion, that it's the sort of living, breathing tool that can accompany us and almost act like a mirror that sort of reflects back to us and helps us work out all these different experiences and the life of faith. So that's why I'm going to um, offer the scripture as a way to work through all that. Uh, so we're going to do some work today. It's, it's a work day. You guys up for it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Let me start in Genesis chapter 28. Uh, Genesis has a story that we have uh, told before, and it's the story of a man named Jacob. And Jacob's experience, uh, it rings, it resonates with the, the sort of first movement that these authors describe. So Jacob, uh, if you know his story, this might sound familiar. Jacob is a grasping, greedy, taking kind of man. Uh, maybe you've had that impulse in your life. Maybe you've known the type, right? And one of the things that he grasps is the resources and the blessings that belong to his family. So at this time and in this culture, of course, the father has a blessing that's property gift to the firstborn son, but Jacob's not the firstborn son. And this blessing has some teeth to it. It matters for these people who gets the blessing and what it does for them. But Jacob tricks his elderly father into giving the blessing to him instead of giving it to his older brother. And it's sort of irrevocable. Now that the blessing's been given, the father can't take it back, and Jacob has successfully stolen this. Well, understandably, his older brother is upset about this. So Esau, the text says, has like a murderous rage. Esau wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob then is on the run. And if you meditate on this story and you put yourself in his shoes for a moment, it seems that he's on the run from some family conflict. Anybody been there? Uh, seems like he's on the run from what he's done, from his own um, actions. You ever like look back on what you've done and been so ashamed or afraid of it that you just wish you could get away from it. And of course, he's also on the run from a literal physical threat, which is his brother wants to actually kill him. So he's on the run. And then in Genesis 28, he has this encounter. Let's read. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob's on the run, and he sort of stumbles into this awareness of God. It's not a theoretical idea of God. It's like, no, like right here in my life, in this place, while I'm in the run, I have this awareness of God. And this is what I would call that first initial sort of experience. Uh, the word I'm using for it is awakening. Uh, many have had some version of that. It's more than a theoretical idea. 
It's a, a felt sort of gut level experience that there's more here that meets the eye and that that ultimate reality that sort of stands behind all of this is also present to me in some real and palpable way. Now, what's interesting about Jacob's experience and the way the authors of the critical journey describe this is they say uh, that this awakening usually uh, comes from one of two things, either awe or need. And by need, they mean maybe physical need, maybe a need for safety if you're under threat, maybe a need for relief if you can't make it, maybe an, a need to be relieved of your guilt. And in Jacob, you see all of this, right? He's clearly in need. He is on the run away from what he has done and this threat that's coming after him. And he has that awesome, this sort of, Terror and awe start to look similar, don't they? Like when you're on the verge of something much bigger than yourself, when you realize that you are stumbling around in a, in a venue or a theater of activity much bigger than what you simply see in front of your eyes, that feeling of awe sort of stirs up inside. And he has all of that going on in this moment. Maybe you've had um, a moment like that or a season like that or several seasons like that, or maybe you're there right now. You just have this, this felt knowledge that says that God is more than a theory or an idea. Um, it, it's personal. And you, you just sense sort of in your gut or in your bones that our lives are being lived in a larger sort of setting. It's more than what meets the eye. There's a God who's part of the story, and this God is somehow part of our stories. I know for me, like when I think about faith journey, uh, like I'm a kid who was raised in church and had parents who have always been really committed to that. And so in some ways, it can be hard to figure out like where it began, right? Or like where these movements happen. But if I, if I just sort of widen my view for a moment, I, what I'm aware of is that like when I was young, uh, I picture these early sort of like God experiences and they're almost always me alone walking in the woods. And first of all, that was a place where I just felt like sort of lost in the beauty of nature. Uh, but the woods, by the way, is also the place that I would go to when I was really scared. Uh, when um, something about social life or family life was really hard, sometimes the woods are the place that I would go to to cry or to just kind of like work it out, you know, just walk and walk and have a, f a felt sense of God in those places. Uh, maybe you relate to this sort of awakening thing. Now, the thing about that awakening is, is for most of us, there's a natural direction to it, it that from that awakening, we find ourselves moving toward another sort of stage or phase or experience, like we want to do something with it. So uh, in the scriptures, um, here I'm sort of offering what you might call like an archetypal reading, which is to say like the, the movements in scripture um, are about all of us. So an example of an archetypal reading is we could talk about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? And we could read a story about Adam whose name in the Hebrew means something like human who finds himself along with Eve on the outside looking in, feeling alienated from the place where God was with a, with a sense of a loss of innocence. Now we can fight all day about whether that's a historical account or not, but I think most of us can agree that there are moments in life when we feel like we are on the outside looking in, feeling alienated from a knowledge or experience of God. Well, that would be sort of an archetypal reading. This is about all of us. And I'm arguing that the scriptures are doing that often and that when we read in Genesis about Jacob, for example, we can locate ourselves there. And uh, we can think about like, uh, how really a lot of the book of Genesis, a lot of the opening of the scriptures has to do with um, awakenings. These are persons 
having a sort of personal awakening or awareness of God. So you got Jacob. Uh, but a couple generations before Jacob, you have Abram. And Abram seems to be sort of minding his own business. And the only thing we know about Abram is that his wife is barren in a, at a time and place where for your offspring to carry on your name is the closest thing they have to eternal life in their imagination. His wife is barren, which is as good as saying, like, you're done, right? It's the only thing we know about him, and yet he just kind of bumps into this awakening awareness of a God who calls him out in Genesis 12. Again, it's a person in need who has an awakening, right? Or we could go forward from Jacob to his son Joseph. You know Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Yeah? Joseph's one of those 12 brothers, and he's the one that goes down to Egypt, and he suffers, and he has this really hard life. His brothers forsake him, and then he's put in jail, and he's under all these threats, right? So Joseph has this really strange story from chapter 37 to 50 in the book of Genesis. But again and again, the text says, Joseph knew that God was with him. It's like a felt awareness that God's with him in these experiences. You know what's interesting about Genesis 37 to 50 is God never speaks it's one of the longest stretches in the entire Bible where God never like, shows up and, and speaks or like, in, a, in a visible or like, clear way. And yet again and again, we, we read about another person who has this felt awareness of God. So Genesis, persons have these awakening moments, right? Well, in Exodus, we go from persons who have a sort of a, an awakening awareness of God to a people who are drawn together into a, a structure, into a way of being with each other and with God. So if you know the story, uh, Joseph's descendants, you know, it starts as a little family that's in Egypt, but that family grows into a, like a, a massive sort of clan or tribe. And then they're seen as suspicious in Egypt, so they're made slaves in Egypt. And then generations later, Moses is raised up as this sort of charismatic leader to lead them out of their slavery and into their freedom. And this is a moment where they're becoming a people. Remember, they were just slaves who happened to be related. But now they're becoming a people, and they're going to be given a law. This is where the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20, right? And then if you keep reading page after page, there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of law, right? Lots of, lots of instructions and ways of thinking about how we are going to be a people in a way that's appropriate for the presence of God in our midst. So Genesis, persons have an awakening of the presence of God. In Exodus, a people is formed who, who are given structure or a way of being with God. Like here in Deuteronomy, this is a summary statement at the end of the law. God says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So again, we went from people, or sorry, persons having an awakening to God, to the, these pages being about a people being gathered together, given a structure for how they will live with one another in God. This is uh, what the authors of The Critical Journey describe as a sort of a, a next movement, which is what you might call learning and belonging. Because it's natural, you have this awakening inside and you want to know what to do with it. Well, if there is a God and if God is relevant to my life, then, like what do I do with it? What does it mean for the ways I behave and the ways I think and what are the beliefs that sort of align with that experience? And it's natural to move toward a, a community of people where you can be given a really clear structure. 
Uh, the writers of Critical Journey say often uh, after this awakening, people will especially be drawn to like a really charismatic leader, right? Like um, you might be following a particular author who writes lots of books, and these books tell you exactly how to think about Christian faith and how to live your Christian faith. Or you might find yourself drawn into a community or, or a church or a spiritual family of some sort. And within that context, you might be given a really clear structure about how to work out all these beliefs. And this is where uh, you, know, you go from an awakening of God to a 20-page doctrinal statement, right? Yeah, you go to that kind of movement. And that's really appropriate, because awakening is one thing, but living it is another. And it makes sense to want to live in harmony with that sort of thing, right? For me, I remember particularly in, in middle school, and as faith was becoming personal for me, uh, I remember, I remember like, finding out that there's this guy named C.S. Lewis. And he seems to have it all figured out, right? And so it was really helpful. It was really good for that, my mind at that point to, to think about that stuff. And then I found myself, especially at summer camp. Summer camp was kind of my primary faith tribe. Uh, and so I would go there every summer, and the counselors that I would see year after year and, and the fellow students that were a part of it, like there was a really thick sort of tribe that I was a part of, a really beautiful experience of belonging. Now, a couple of notes about this sort of moment in the life of faith. First of all, while it's fantastic and really good, um, there can be some dark side to it. So you have this awakening, which is really raw and beautiful, and then you learn some stuff. And then you find a tribe of people to belong to. And sometimes the natural dark side or conclusion is, I've figured some stuff out, and my people have it right. So if you disagree with me or my people, you're wrong, right? If you're not part of my sort of mini tribe, then you're really on the outside looking in. There can be... Uh, what starts out as a really youthful confidence can sort of spoil sometimes into a bit of arrogance. I know that I have had those seasons in my life where I just figured I had everything figured out. Um, during this stage, a couple other things can happen. Uh, the writers describe what they call switching. So the, what they mean by switching is, so let's say you have this awakening and then you land in a tribe where you get a really clear picture, a very sort of systematic package of all the things to think and, and do with regard to your relationship with God, right? So maybe you received that package of ideas, beliefs, behaviors from a, a pastor, and then, God forbid, maybe the pastor evolves a little bit. And then they don't see everything quite the way they used to see it two years ago, right? Or maybe that pastor moves on and a new voice is in the pulpit. And you're frustrated because all of a sudden there's a different package. Some of the ideas are being put together differently. Some of the behaviors are being prescribed differently. Well, one of the reactions to that can be that you just kind of, you're, you're not about to let your package get messed with at all. So you're going to leave that community and you're going to go like sort of move on from community to community to community, trying to find somebody else to just keep reinforcing the exact package that you received uh, after that moment of awakening. The writers say this is uh, the difference between moving around and, and moving on. They say you're just moving around. You're not moving onward in your journey. You're not really growing. You're just sort of bouncing around looking for somebody or some community to keep reinforcing all of the exact same ideas. That's one of the ways this can go a little bit sour. Another way that this, this season can be really difficult is um, if you have this, this raw, sort of beautiful, vulnerable awakening, this awareness that there's more to the story and it's personal for you, and then you go seek out a community where you can learn and belong, and then that community turns out to be really unhealthy. Or maybe there's a person in that community who turns out to be really unhealthy, and you get really hurt. Maybe it was the Sunday school teacher who um, 
just had some issues and they did more to shame you than to help you. Or maybe it was a community at large and the actual operating system of that community was, uh, maybe it was very judgmental. And so you show up like hungry and eager and ready to learn and belong and instead you get shamed and ostracized. Uh, that could be a real stifling point in these journeys. And perhaps the really understandable thing to do at that point, the wise thing to do at that point, is to opt out, right? I mean, like, why, why, why would you sign up for more of that? And so some, like, there's this awakening experience, and then it just sort of sits there stifled or frustrated, and we don't know where to go from there. Um, now, uh, the thing about, uh, oh, no, I'm not going to say that yet. We'll keep going. Sorry. Okay. Um, this is what the authors uh, are referring to as a kind of second movement after this awakening. Uh, let's keep going. Uh, there's another big movement, and if you can read the scriptures uh, with fresh eyes, I think it's kind of delightful and surprising. And what happens later in the scriptures is that the action gets relocated. Now, what I, what I mean by that is like, uh, in the scriptures, it's really clear the action is with God. God does big things in the scriptures. God does important things in the scriptures. And then we get to the pages of the gospels where Jesus is where that activity is located, but that's not the relocation I'm talking about. But we have God living God's life through Jesus, but then Jesus starts calling his everyday friends into the action and giving them some of the work to do. So like in Mark chapter six, we read about this. Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So he's doing all the impressive stuff, right? But then calling the 12, these are, uh, that's the word for the, the 12 sort of named friends who are often with Jesus. Calling the 12, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. That is impressive, right? So all of a sudden, the action gets relocated in the lives of everyday people. And I'm going to suggest that the right word for this sort of movement is to go from learning and belonging to contributing. Like something happens, the community around you looks you in the eye and says, man, you've actually got something to give. You've been giving gifts and talents and experiences and resources. And who you are and what you have, it matters for the life of God in the world. And so it's like a whole new awakening. And it's really beautiful when you wake up and realize you've got something to give. Uh, for me, early, these experiences almost always revolved around uh, this guy, uh, the keyboard. Um, but I remember like being back at that summer camp in early high school when the counselors that I had adored and admired for years, the people I trusted, who had been leading me along in this sort of faith journey, I remember very clearly the day they like called me aside and they were like, hey, this, this week at camp, like when we're doing the worship stuff, you wanna play the keyboards? You wanna play the piano? And I was like, oh my gosh, I have arrived, right? Like, this is a big deal, you know? They even invited me to planning meetings and they showed me how it is that they thought about why we sing the songs that we sing and the scriptures that we read, why do we pick those out? It's a really big deal, right? It's a dignifying moment. It's a really important moment in this journey to realize like you're more than an observer, you're, you're meant to be more than a spectator. God thinks so highly of you that he has given you gifts and is calling you into the action. Now, uh, that being said, um, two and three, like learning and belonging and contributing, uh, while these are beautiful and vital and necessary stages in our life of growth, one thing that's interesting about these stages is they can be really good for the ego. Right? I mean, it's like, I'm here and I matter, right? Like, that can be a good thing, but they can, these can reinforce the ego, and that can be good or that can be bad. So, like, by the way, everybody needs an ego. I actually mean that. Like, if you don't have any ego, 
you're going to have problems, right? Ego is that, that raw drive, that raw sort of capacity to like push that sense that you are here and you matter. And if you don't have any sense that you're here and you matter, that can be really, really challenging, right? But the problem is when the ego goes from the passenger seat to the driver's seat, right? When the ego starts calling the shots in our lives. And these two phases, they can actually be really good for the ego. And one of the ways that we can get stuck in these phases is once the ego is in charge, it does not like to let go, right? But man, if you get to a point where you're like, I have the right theology, and I belong to the right tribe, and I have a part to play, that can be like some serious me stuff, right? That can be really hard to let go of that. And a lot of us can get stuck in that moment in the journey, uh, which is why it's not the end of the journey. <laughs> There's more. Uh, this is where things tend to get a little bit disruptive, though. And maybe this will feel familiar for some of us here. Um, one of the places in scripture where what's next is expressed, I think, uh, is a story uh, called Job. There's a character there uh, who, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, is described as a righteous man. Um, this is a man who like, does the right things and lives a faithful life. Like if it's modern era, he'd be like an elder in the church, right? He'd be on the board of a couple nonprofits. Like he'd just be like a good, successful, virtuous man. And then everything goes awry in his life. Just all of his expectations are frustrated. Uh, he loses his wealth and with it his security that comes with that wealth. Then he loses his family. His beloved are killed off. And then he loses his health and he's sitting there racked with pain, with like, like boils. I mean, the, the account of his suffering is disturbing and poetic, but in the most cringeworthy kind of ways when you read about this, right? Um, this is that moment when like, the things that got you this far don't get you any further. The prayers that you prayed so far don't seem to work anymore. It all kind of falls apart for Job and he has some friends who give him some bad advice and then after sort of mediating this with his friends, he decides to go directly to God. And God's response to Job is um, frustrating, terrifying, unsatisfying, but I think there's something going on here. We're going to work this out. So Job, uh, in this deep experience of absurd suffering, comes to God, and God uh, responds like this in chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, who is this that obscures my plans? with words without knowledge. Watch this. Brace yourself like a man. God says that to you, watch out, right? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Were you, or where were you when I laid the, found, the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? And when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? <laughs> or shown the dawn its place? That's just a taste, you guys. God goes on 
and on with this utterly frustrating, unsatisfying answer for a man who has done everything right and nothing is working. And this is the moment that I would describe as breaking. Breaking. The moment where the things that got you this far don't work anymore. Sometimes we experience breaking as abrupt. It just seems to happen overnight. Other times it feels like it happens slowly, incrementally. For some of us, the breaking has been primarily through a profound experience of suffering. Like you didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. It just came for you. You know, like not only did your marriage fall apart, but then you found out that apparently there was a secret prenup that your spouse had with your friends and she gets all of them or he gets all of them. And so like your marriage has ended, your finances are ruined and you're alone and it doesn't add up and it doesn't seem right. And you prayed all the right prayers and you had God at the center of your marriage and you did all the pre-marriage counseling and then you're just left holding the broken pieces of it. This can be where the breaking comes from, just suffering. It could be a medical diagnosis that has cast a shadow over your entire life and you don't know what the end of it will be, but it's been really hard. It could be the day that you lost your job, even though like, you had done everything right, but corporate finances just meant there was less room in the bottom line, and so yours was one of the positions that was eliminated. Sometimes the breaking comes not from an experience of suffering, though. Sometimes the breaking comes from an experience of um, the intellectual grappling with the way that our pieces of, of our faith fit together, right? And so for a long time, like maybe you learned and you belonged and you learned a, a system of thought about God and the Bible and Jesus and prayer and everything, and then some data point came into your field of view that just couldn't be reconciled with the picture the way that you had it. This can be incredibly disruptive, right? Like maybe, maybe, maybe you grew up hearing pastors who said again and again, they kind of hammered the pulpit on it. They said, you know, evolution can't be true because it contradicts the Bible. You can't have both. So they really hammered that. They said, you can't have both. And then you went to college. And, you know, I don't know, but you just, you heard this really compelling picture of the science. And it's the pastor who told you again and again, you can't have both, can't have both, irreconcilable. And because the pastor told you you can't have both, you said, well, I guess I have to pick one. So I guess that means I got to go down this path of like sort of leaving behind all that faith stuff because the science seems really clear. Sometimes it's an experience of um, somebody who fits into a category that you were told was out of bounds, but then you met somebody. Like you actually saw their life up close face to face. And the problem is the, the character of their life and their faith um, just didn't fit what you had been told your whole life about who's in and who's out, and you have to reevaluate everything. We could go on and on and on, suffering um, the, the, the journey of intellectual faith, the questions that we ask, but many of us at some point find ourselves at a breaking. It might have been uh, when a role model failed. It might have been like the, the pastor or the priest that you trusted most just ended up that their life was not what it seemed. And it's like, well, but that, that's the pack. That, that was part of the package. It was through that person that you learned all this stuff. So how could any of it be true, right? I mean, again, we could go on and on. Uh, but the breaking happens at some point, and it can be slow and incremental or abrupt, but it can be really hard. Uh, the writers of The Critical Journey, they describe uh, it like this. They say one of the most difficult aspects of this stage in the journey lies in the sense gained from ourselves and others that we really are losing our faith and being disloyal to the group, the church, the organization, the leader, ourselves, and our beliefs. 
You find yourself feeling like you became a traitor, though you never asked to be, right? Um, many of us in this community have had some experience of that. Some of us call it maybe a deconstruction. Um, we just don't believe all the same things that we used to, but we're not sure how the pieces fit back together again. Now, um, what's interesting is this situation can be very, very difficult, like really traumatic, very isolating. But I actually think it's where a lot of the good stuff is. Uh, because it's one of the places where the ego is thoroughly demoted, right? If you have to wake up one day and say, I, I'm not sure I know everything I thought I knew. I'm not sure the life I lived is as perfect as I had hoped that it was. Or uh, I'm not sure the tribe that I came from had everything figured out. Uh, the ego is going to go through a pretty brutal journey there. But one of the reasons the writers named this moment is because on the other side of this moment, there are opportunities and capacities for love in ways that are impossible until the ego is put in its place, right? Now, a lot of different things can happen at this moment in the journey. One thing that can happen when you bump up against the breaking is you might want to go back to what you could call an earlier stage. And all of that language is problematic because I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's regressive. You might sort of um, look for a new place to learn and belong, to kind of try to put together a new package of beliefs, right? Kind of rebuild, but it can look sort of like that earlier phase of learning and belonging. Or you reorient yourself to new ways of contributing. Or you go all the way back and you seek out a new experience of awakening, sort of a fresh, raw encounter with God. Those can be beautiful, healthy, and holy ways of responding to this breaking. You kind of double down, right? But sometimes, when you come up against the breaking, the only way out is through. All the way through to ask the questions that you've been afraid to ask because you suspect that not all the answers will be comfortable for you, right? To go like all the way through, you might experience a season of isolation or loneliness. And I'm not rooting for anybody to be lonely, but I know that none of us gets to live full lives without seasons of isolation and loneliness. It's kind of baked in, right? It's kind of part of all of this. Side note, I should say that um, all of the writers that I've read, like I've studied a bunch of different voices on these spiritual journeys, and they all have different ways of narrating the journey, but they all roughly agree on what some of the earlier stages look like. And they all agree that churches tend to flourish for people in those earlier stages. Like institutionalism, that, like that tends to work really well when you want structure and belonging and you want to volunteer and contribute. Uh, but it can be really scary for churches to talk about the wall and what happens on the other side of the wall. And frankly, one of the reasons is that people in a job like mine have invested ourselves in preventing you from having to go there. But I'm not sure that's really like what we're here for, right? And frankly, one of the things that might happen if you keep going is you might, you might realize that the ways that you thought you needed church, you don't need it anymore. Now, I think everybody needs spiritual community. I think everybody needs church, but we need it in different ways. And it can be really hard for a church to like cheer for you as much when your faith is falling apart as we do when it's being built, right? So the day that you walk in and say, man, I think I believe in God. I think I've had this awakening moment. It's really easy for the church to rally around that. But the day that you walk in and you say, I don't know anymore, it can be really hard for the church to say, yeah, we get it. But keep going. Those questions you're asking, like, keep asking them. That stuff you're digging into, like, keep digging into it. But we really want to be 
uh, the kind of church here in South Bend that can walk with one another through all of that. Now, um, when we talk about like the wall and the things that we like get rid of, the deconstruction that can happen, right? I think it's important to say again, there are things on the other side of that wall. <laughs> there is an opportunity for rebuilding in a whole new way. And I think uh, some of us uh, might need to think about what life and faith look like on the other side of that wall. I think that's where some of us have felt kind of stuck, right? And one of the, the big ideas that I want to share with us in this little series is that if you're going to keep going on the other side of the wall, you might have to reconcile yourself to the places that you came from. Because until you reconcile yourself to the places that you came from, you're running away from something more than you're running towards something. Uh, this is what some of the writers mean when they talk about transcending and including. Keep going, keep growing, transcend. But you've got to find a way to include uh, your whole story, your whole history, the places and the ideas that you came from. I see this very much in the life of Jesus. So depending on which scholars you read, uh, there's a bit of a fight over whether we could say that Jesus broke the Torah or the law or not. Uh, but it seems really clear, at least in Mark's gospel, that you know that law package that I told you about in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Well, Jesus seems to very self-consciously violate some of the prescriptions of that Torah. Like, he seems to have no problem touching unclean people. People who are ceremonially un unclean in light of that law, he seems to have no problem embracing them. Depending on how you read the fights over his Sabbath practices, it seems that um, he's at least going against the predominant interpretation of what the law means for Sabbath. So this is a man who seems to have no problem realizing that what God is doing in him and through him is going to carry the story beyond what the law did, right? But look what he says in Matthew about the law. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He, like, he seems to think of what, what he's doing and what God is doing through him as it's not about like, rejecting all of that or leaving it all behind. He seems to live at great peace with where he and his people's story has come from, even while he knows that there's another chapter that's being written. And I think some of us could take some help from that if we feel a little stuck somewhere like in that experience of the wall. Uh, two quick examples. One for me. Uh, this might seem a little bit like inside baseball, but people will often ask me, like, like what kind of Christian are you? Right? They wonder, like, what breed of Christian I am. Or they'll ask the same question about South and City Church, you know? <laughs> what what kind, of, kind of thing is going on over there, right? And often the, the next question is, well, are you evangelical? Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's a tricky word these days, right? And I'll say, evangelical is like never a word that I've um, thought was a very good description of my own faith, just to put my cards on the table. Uh, I won't get into that too far. Um, but as I have tried to keep growing and learning, I have realized that if somebody really cares about how I'm narrating my own journey, it's actually a little bit dishonest to be like, ah, no, not evangelical. I think a truer word would be something, and forgive me for how obnoxiously hipster this sounds, uh, like post-evangelical. <laughs> My name's Jason, I'm a post-evangelical. <laughs> um, but what I mean by that is it wouldn't be, it, it would be, it would be incomplete to act as if I wasn't dramatically shaped in environments that largely carried an evangelical ethos. And that's just a true part of my story. And I can find that label unfashionable or politically problematic, or I can feel great distance from the package of ideas that are often used to describe evangelical Christianity. And yet, 
Like, I grew in those environments. They were like greenhouses for my soul. And it would just be dishonest to act as if that's not like a part of my history, right? So that's a little example for me of how I'm trying to live up to this. An example that I think names something for a lot of our community would have to do with prayer. So from what I can tell, a lot of people in our church are like in the wall phase or have gone through a wall phase and a lot has gotten deconstructed. And most of the people at South City Church have had some sort of childhood Christian experience and many feel great distance from that experience today. They see things differently than they did then. They disagree with those communities in a number of ways. Um, and so a lot has been deconstructed and, and sort of torn apart, but then a lot's being put back together. A lot of people in this church are putting their faith back together, and I love seeing that sort of regenerative life here. But it seems that for many in this community, one of the things that sort of got stuck back there is prayer. Now, I don't mean that like to guilt you. It's not like you know, Santa Claus Christianity where we're like making a list and checking it twice to make sure you're saying your prayers at night, right? Like it's not that kind of thing. But I think the thing is, um, as I listen to members of this community, I discover that many want to pray. That there is this sort of immutable thing in the soul that wants to commune with that which is beyond us. That ultimate reality of which we are some small part. There's that desire to commune with that. But because the people who taught us to pray also taught us to exclude people that we don't want to exclude, we're having a really hard time praying. Because the people who taught us to pray have a worldview that's significantly different than some of ours today, we're having a hard time finding our way back to prayer. It can be really uncomfortable. It can feel like maybe we're regressing to go back to those communities and experiences. But the thing is, I don't know anybody who narrates a spiritual journey. I don't care how enlightened or post-evangelical there. I don't know anybody who narrates a spiritual journey who doesn't say that prayer in some form is just absolutely essential for who we are becoming. Like, I don't drop that as like a, a guilt bomb or anything. If you, if you haven't prayed in years, please hear me. I get it, okay? Like, it's not meant to shame at all. I just know that like the soul, I think when it is alive, like it wants to, it wants to commune in some way with that larger reality of which we are a part. And I suspect that for many of us, prayer will remain locked up in some earlier stage in our journey until we learn to say thank you to where we came from. I don't mean thank you for everything. <laughs> I don't mean thank you if you got hurt. I don't mean thank you if people were excluded that you believe should not be. But, but, but you're here today, right? And somehow who you are has been shaped by those earlier experiences. And I suspect with some reflection, you would discover that however imperfect some of those environments, those spiritual families were, they probably gave you some gifts. And prayer might be one of them, but it might be locked up in those earlier experiences until we can learn to not just keep going, but to bring with us the best of where we've come from. So Jesus knows that the law, as understood by his peers in the first century, he knows that that law is being relativized by what God is doing in him, right? Like, we will never preach a sermon at South and City Church on not eating shellfish as a religious priority. But it's in the law, right? Because something happened. Something happened in Jesus that has sort of brought us into a different experience of God today. And yet he says, I, didn't, I did not come to... to um, denigrate or abolish 
I did not come at odds with that history, but I came as a fulfillment of it. And I think in the same way, you and I might be invited in our own journeys to say that the moment we are in right now is not just a rejection of where we came from, but in some strange way, perhaps God has even used those earlier experiences to bring us to where we are right now. And I think people who learn to say thank you for where we've came, come from are people who are able to avail themselves of the gifts uh, that were part of that experience back then. Uh, one more note, and then I promise uh, we're done for the day. And it's just this. Uh, let's keep the goal in front of us. Um, everything I've just done, it can feel kind of academic. It can feel like, a, you know, like we, we slapped a, an x-ray on the board and we sort of did a, you know, a diagram. But the point is to be alive, right? So let me just keep in front of us uh, this reminder that as we are growing, um, it might be tempting to think that the ultimate goal is to believe everything exactly right but I just don't think that's God's ultimate aim for us. It might be tempting to think that the ultimate goal is to behave exactly right, to know how to do all the right things and none of the wrong things. I don't think that's the ultimate goal. I think something else is at stake. Uh, the writer Paul alludes to it in the book of Romans when he says in chapter 13, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, if I speak and do impressive things, right, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, that is some impressive belief, right? If I have all of that but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And I'm convinced that this entire journey, and the reason it's good, is that God's ultimate goal for us is not what we believe or what we do and how we behave, but that God's ultimate goal for us is what we become. And that what we are becoming through the, the delightful moments in the journey, the invigorating learning and belonging and contributing, and what we are becoming through the suffering and the dark nights of the soul, that what we are becoming is love. Each of us our own beautiful, unique species of love. This is fitting um, as we... Uh, around the eve of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And as uh, even right here in our own community, many of us will be reflecting on uh, how much work we still have to do uh, to make sure that that vision of a beloved community that Dr. King preached about is fulfilled, that um, we have work to do on behalf of our neighbors who experience uh, injustices that some of us have not known. Um, but the point, like Dr. King reminded us again and again, is that beloved sort of belonging that we all want to have with each other, and, and I would add with God. Uh, at the center of Christian faith is Jesus, and specifically the idea that in his death and resurrection, he revealed something at the center of the heart of God. That God has always been the kind of God who would, would give God's self in love um, before responding in vengeance or murder. And so if you feel a little lost in your journey, if you're not sure if you're making progress or not, let me just hold that in front of you one more time. The point is that we would grow up in love. And uh, if that's what is waiting for us, then I don't know any part of the journey that's not worth it. Uh, if you're able, you stand to your feet. You guys sat through a long one. Good job. Um, next week, I'm so excited. Uh, Beth Grable will be teaching us. Do not miss uh, what she has to say. She's going to carry this conversation on a little bit further for us. Uh, as we go, if some want to stack a few chairs on the back two rows of this section, this section, and this section, that'll help us get ready for Thursday night. And then I thought I would just offer uh, a good old-fashioned prayer for us um, before we go. Let's pray.
loving God. Some of us have a deep sense of awakening and we are grateful. We have this awareness that we are not alone, that there is this benevolent goodness at the center of the universe and it is alive and it's you. And you're not far away or aloof, but you're with us in some profound way. Thank you. Some of us are lit up with learning and belonging. We are beginning to discover ways of thinking and, and behaving that align with the awareness that we have that you're here. Uh, we discovered a tribe, uh, a crew of people with whom we can walk in this journey. And I pray if that's any of us today that we would seize that moment and squeeze everything we can out of it. That we would revel in the joy of learning and belonging. Some of us um, have discovered that we actually have something to offer. That um, our lives matter in the deepest and most profound ways. Not just for commercial goods we can produce or not just that we would get out of the way of other people, but we have something positive to give to the story that you're writing in the world. I thank you for the dignity that we sense in that experience, because it's true and it's right. God, some of us uh, are at or are approaching or have been stuck at something like a wall for a while, and we have felt the breaking. I pray for special graces for anyone who feels that right now whether it's been some experience of suffering or whether it's just questions that began to chip away at the picture of things that we had. I pray that you would extend special graces, that we would find people around us who are deeply wise and understanding, who know that perhaps the answer isn't to fix it or talk us out of it, but to simply walk with us through it. I pray that you'd make us brave during the dark nights of the soul and that we would look forward on the other side to the ways that love might expand in us and through us. I thank you uh, for this tribe called Southland City Church, and I thank you for Jesus who leads us on this beautiful journey. And I pray these things in his name. And we all said, amen. amen. Grace and peace be with you, friends. Love you guys. See you soon.